Good morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across this amazing continent that we call home. This is The Breakfast Show, positively different radio in the morning. The Double L team filling, filling in for the M Factor while Mon is away. Lyle and Lawson. Lawson, what are you thankful for this morning, Lawson? <clears throat> oh, I'm just, I'm just thankful for everything. There's so much to be thankful for. Um, there's, this I've is, got it's some so ephemeris. Yes. I, I, well, I've got is some the right se- word? secret squirrel thankfulness that I can't tell anyone about, which I'm super thankful for. But you're going to say it tomorrow. Yeah, I'm probably going to say it tomorrow. Um, I've got some other things that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that the Ethiopia trip is just coming together and it's just I leave really on great. Friday. Yeah, you leave on Friday. So That's provided that you're not hearing this next week. Yeah, so it would be good to mention that this the is actually the, the intro for the delayed broadcast. broadcast. Yeah. The delayed So you might broadcast. be getting old news today. There is a way to get new news. Yes, there is. How do you do that? How do I do that? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up my laptop, my phone, my iPad, or my smart fridge. I'm going to go to the internet smart browser. <laughs> because you have one. Well, I don't have a smart fridge. I wish I had a smart fridge. But if you have a smart fridge, you go to the internet browser. And you look up faithfm.com.au. And there's a little play button in the top right-hand corner. You're going to click it. And wherever you are in Australia, you have radio. Lawson, what does a smart fridge do? I don't know. I think it's like an Android-powered fridge or something. Does it tell me you need to throw out, you know, the jar on the bottom left corner of the third shelf because it's been in there too long? I don't know, but I think it should. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, shout fridge. out all the smart fridge listeners, you know, call right. us in. Call in if you're listening on a you smart fridge. You can't call fridge. in. It's a oh, yeah, delayed broadcast. Yeah. Well, no calling rip. in. <laughs> uh, call us anyway. We'll put you on the live show. Yeah. It'll be even more fun. Yeah. And you can tell us what your smart fridge does. All right, Lyle, what are you grateful for? I am grateful for... Another household tool or application... Yes. Appliance, sorry. Lunch dates. Oh, lunch. I love lunch. Lunch dates. Lunch I had dates. A hot lunch date yesterday with a smoking hot chick. It was just. <laughs> was the best ever. Uh, coming up in today's program, <laughs> getting back to the news, we are going to talk with Burrand Newstraten yes. about the Creation Week. Really, really interesting uh, presentation that he's going to bring mm-hmm. to us. And uh, so, st- so stay tuned for that. Don't go anywhere. And we will be back to um, uh, talk about more amazing news right after this. Letting go of everything
Guys, crossing over to Mon in South Africa. Mon, what's happening there today? Oh, Lyle, I got to tell you, I am sitting in a car over the ocean. I have to my right just an expanse of swiftly fading sky. There was a mirroring blue in the water. It's now turning inky. And to my left, I have just the most magical scene of just the last remains of a sunset and there's an armada of clouds sneaking out from behind Table Mountain and Lion's Head and just coming into view. And then underneath the mountain, of course, is just the, the flickering lights of the city. And I can't help but just sit here and acknowledge the fact that every drop of my blood is so blessed right now. <laughs> Mon, that is quite the word picture you've just given us right there. I think we are all super jealous at this moment. Why can't we be with, be there with you in South Africa? Oh, I wish you all were here. I wish I wish so much for you all. All the listeners were here with me, all crammed into this one car, like a bunch of clowns in a clown car. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I don't think we'd fit. <laughs> no, no, we wouldn't. Look, Lyle, I want to talk about something specific today. This is, without a shadow of a doubt, the constant elephant in the room in the whole of South Africa. It's, it's underlying issue is something that cannot be avoided. I, I, I've, just, I've just been brimming with, I don't know, enth- not enthusiasm, but just 
just curiosity and just a desire to talk about it because I'm not a very good person to ignore the elephant in the room. And I just want to address apartheid because apartheid, from what I've seen here, it's as real today as it was back then. It's just it doesn't have the legal system behind it. So for those of you who are listening who might be young or, or who just have never heard of apartheid, uh, for about 50 years, so I think it was about really four years short of being 50 years, uh, in South Africa they had um, legislation that in a nutshell basically separated um, any person of colour, so uh, black or Indian or what they call coloured here. Um, in most countries to say someone is coloured is to, is to say a ra- is, is a racial slur. But in South Africa they have four definite um, races, they have black, white, Indian, and coloured. So it's actually the technical term for the race. So I'm not being racist. That's literally what they're called, what they want to be called. Um, and so anyone of colour, so blacks, Indians, and coloured, they were legally separated from the whites. And so that they weren't allowed to go in the white areas. They weren't allowed to, you know, sit in the front of the bus. Um, they all had to carry these ridiculous pass cards where any white person could come up and demand to see a black person's card and the card had to be produced and it will have all their details you know how good they did at school how much money they have what tribe they came from and all this information they didn't have it they're gonna be put in prison and uh and just the racism is just mind-boggling it's absolutely mind-boggling what humans have done to each other in this country and this is only recently apartheid only ended in 1990 like, it's, it's, it was just back then. I was alive then. I was six years old when apartheid ended. Um, which, and this, for those who don't know, this is why Nelson Mandela was so famous because he uh, opposed apartheid and he worked against apartheid and he was prisoned for that. Um, and then when he was released from prison, he worked towards um, ending apartheid, which he did. And even though some people might say Nelson Mandela is a terrorist because he was sort of involved in terrorist acts, the fact that he managed to end apartheid with as little bloodshed as he did was absolutely, it was a miracle. Like you'd think an overhaul of a government and the end of such a disgusting regime would have taken a lot more rioting and bloodshed than it actually did. So it was a miracle it happened as peacefully as it did. The thing here I've noticed in Cape Town, and I don't want to knock Cape Town because it is a breathtakingly beautiful city, which I told you about last time. But I've noticed there is a distinct difference in the within the city of just walking through. You can see these different communities, and it's almost like sure they took the lines away, but the lines are still there in everybody's head. And so, two streets across, you'll have like the white section, which is all fancy and upmarket and classy and hipster and blah 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 blah. And then you have two streets down. And it's most definitely the poor area, the black area. And you can see the distinct difference between the two. And I mean, just by looking at the people walking around, you have black people on one side, white people on the other, and never the twain shall mix. And it's, it's mind boggling to me. Today I went to, um, what they call the District 6 Museum. So District 6 was, uh, an area of the city, so I have to just imagine a suburb, um, and it was predominantly coloured in black uh, back in the 50s when apartheid started. 
And what the white people did was, what the government did was, they decided to get rid of it so they could have the land. And so they displaced 60,000 residents. And so they just bulldozed all their homes and sent them packing, um, didn't give them a choice about where they were to live, uh, and took them out to what is still existing today, and they're called townships. A township sounds like it's a nice thing to us, but it's actually like a slum or a ghetto, and it's so rough. They're overrun by gangs, violence. They're incredibly dangerous to go to, even to this day. I think the only slums that can rival the danger of of the South African township is the ones in Brazil. I think they're the two most dangerous places you could go. So these townships exist today, and they're basically where they shoved, where they displaced all the black people. Because the problem hasn't been solved at all. And District 6 got bulldozed and got, you know, um, what's that word, gentrificationized, where they basically just, like, moved out one race to put in another one, a more affluent one, and they were taken over. So then this museum, and I just, it was just mind-boggling. It was just mind-boggling what they did to the people. It was so insidious. And the thing is, I'm so curious about this um, and I want to talk to people because it is such a young issue. There are still many, many, many people alive who experienced it from start to finish because um, it only came in the 50s. Like, even my parents uh, weren't born when it started. Um, so it, there's so many people walking around who who have the scars of this. And I've noticed, Lyle, and I and I'm finding this a bit devastating. I've noticed that when I meet people, when I chat with them, when I make friends with them, and after a while, I, I want to ask questions about apartheid. And so I bring it up and their demeanor instantly changes. And they don't look at you anymore. They look at the floor. They quickly change the subject. They just don't want to talk about it. Um, and I'm, I'm actually finding it really hard to, to talk to anyone about it, um, apart from the young people who, who have, who didn't live through it and who only have like stories from their parents. And I'm wondering if this has become a bit like, a bit like, you know, how when, when men return from war and some of them just never talk about it, a bit like my own grandfather, um, you know, who you know about, Lyle, who, who, who was in World War II as a German soldier and who, when he came back from war, only once ever spoke about the experience, once only to my dad, and that was it. And so I actually know very little about my grandfather's involvement or what happened in World War II at all. And so I'm wondering if today's youth of South Africa don't really know about the whole thing with, with apartheid and, and, and the depths and the gravity of it because the people who experience it don't want to talk about it. It's, it's how they're dealing with it. So I actually wanted to record some interviews for you guys and I still have nothing because no one will talk about it. So I'm really hoping um, with a bit of prayer and a bit of diligence I might be able to interview some people who live through apartheid and, uh, and what they have to say um, and what they have to say about the city now because... Um, statistically, did you know Cape Town is the most beloved city by its residents? So as far as um, how happy the citizens are with their own city, no town tops Cape Town in the world. And so obviously they're, they're delighted with the change and they love how it is now, but it has a very murky, gritty, murderous past. Mm, mm, that's really, um, wow, Mon, you have really... Yeah. Just sort of stunned me this morning. Um, because, you know, it's, it's true. Whenever I talk to somebody from Cape Town, they just always love Cape Town. But 
Just, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, apartheid is one of those things that it's like, yeah, okay, you know, we know that racism used to exist there and it's gone now. Um, and that's the, I guess the, the kind of way that I've always looked at it. And, and I've always said, you know, that, that, that racism, you know, it's much stronger there than what it is in Australia still, because obviously it's going to take a while mm. for these things to disappear. Oh. But for mm-hmm. you to sit there and say that it still exists, that is, um, that's pretty heavy, just in a in a non legal yeah. form. And, yeah, and I guess exactly. I guess yeah. if you think about I guess if you think about the United States and you know how long it took, and you know, uh, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, because I mean I worked down in the deep south there at one stage, and it was still very much you know either side of the tracks, very very mm-hmm. clear line down there in Mississippi and places like that, and you worked in you know black suburbs or white suburbs, whatever it might be. I was working down there. And, um, you know, you'd see people walking, you know, in the same business district together, but they didn't live in the same suburbs, you know. And this was, this yeah. was when was I there? I was there in 93. Um, and I, I can't imagine it would have changed that much since. And it's just hard for us here in Australia to imagine something like that. Well, do you know what, Lyle? I was actually thinking about this. I was wondering... In Australia, is the reason that we think we're at peace with our with our own murderous racist past because we have so few Aboriginals left? Like here in Cape Town, like I, I don't know what the the ratio is. Actually, there's less whites than there are blacks. And in America, I don't know, is it fifty fifty? Whereas in Australia, the Aboriginals are such a small percentage of the population. Is the fact that we think there's no problem there? Is it because they don't have a loud enough voice? Because I think. I think if you actually ask the Aboriginal community at large, they would probably still harbour a lot of resentment about what white Australian settlers did to them. And so it kind of makes me think of the world at large, you know, in terms of racism. Have we ever gotten past, you know, have we ever achieved atonement? Have we ever achieved forgiveness? Have we ever achieved harmony? Have we ever moved on anywhere, anywhere on the planet? Like, has it ever been successful? Or have we just stamped out? those voices in some places like Australia where you just don't hear it anymore. Whereas here in Cape Town, like it's not a little voice anymore. It's a loud roar is staring you in the face down every street you walk. It's an interesting observation. There are some differences, of course. Um, 2% of our population um, has Indigenous heritage, uh, which is about the same in the United States. But the United States, of course, has the uh, non-Indigenous African-American community, which is about 10% of the population. And uh, but once again, these are minorities. Where, I, as I guess in South Africa, they're not minorities. You're, you're dealing with a, a minority white population, and uh, um, yeah, that would that would make a, a significant difference. Now, I'm sure we're running out of time, but I do just want to yeah. read one thing to you. Sure. Um, so yesterday, I had a, had an interesting experience, Lyle. <laughs> um, my uh, my host took me to the the Springbok Rugby Museum, which I had no interest in whatsoever. I'm not interested in sport. Um, I suspect any sport, especially not rugby, such a rough sport. But I did go, and my ulterior motive was I just wanted more information. I just wanted someone to talk to me about apartheid, and I thought to myself. Nelson Mandela tried to reunite um, uh, South Africa through the sport of rugby. I'm sure there must be a part of this museum that discusses it, and it did. And I was so pleased I went and endured the rest of it um, because they had a whole section 
of of the sport during the years of apartheid, so before Nelson Mandela got involved, and uh, and they talked about how when the when the Springboks went on tour, so many other countries around the world would protest whenever they came to their city, and uh, and just and just absolutely slam them. And I think they rightly should have, um, because you know they were basically white citizens of this country that was um, upholding apartheid. And I want to read to you a small section of the Book of the Unwelcome, uh, which was written in 1981, and it was from New Zealand. And when I read that it was from New Zealand and what these New Zealanders wrote, I was so proud to be a neighbour to New Zealand. So it contains signature signatures from thousands, just thousands of New Zealand citizens um, who basically were expressing their wish to be disassociated from the apartheid regime um, and they were requesting that the Springbok rugby team return home. And, uh, and it says here, you know, dear Mr. Blah, 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 this letter, blah, blah, blah. It said, we, the undersigned, believe the argument is simply this. Apartheid in any form is abhorrent and we do not care to be seen or believed to condone it in any way by sporting or any other social contact with a country or its representatives which practices apartheid. And then following that, just thousands and thousands of New Zealand signatures. And I was so proud of that moment because I think that's the right attitude to take towards any kind of racism, any kind of a form of apartheid, and in fact, any kind of sin or hatred. Mm. Bon, it's been so good to uh, chat with you about a heavy subject this morning. We do need to move on. We'll be back again right after this song.
That was Carly Fletcher with Teach Us to Number Our Days here on Faith FM. And as we get back into the part of the show that takes place here in Australia, we have yes. a clue for the quiz. What do you got for us, okay. Dan This is a Who Am I quiz. All right. Who you ready? I? Ready to go? Okay. Mm-hmm. I was to appoint magistrates and judges for Artaxerxes. And if any didn't know the laws of God, I had to teach them. Ooh, who is this individual? Lyle's thinking about it. Gears are spinning. Oh, and he's incorrect. Mm. Oh, that means the double prizes are up for grabs. That means you can call us at 1-800-324-843. And if you get the quiz well, before Lyle does, then... There is, there is one other option. Double prizes. There's no other options. You just don't know who it is. There's two options for that one. <laughs> so far, according to clue number one... Anyway, we'll see what happens when clue number two comes around, whether it will limit those options from one option, from two options down to one option. Alrighty. Okay, so in news taking place around the world, the United States has just closed its consulate in um, Jerusalem and moved all of the consular uh, business to their embassy, which is in Jerusalem, Mm. which is... Which might seem like the obvious thing to do. It's like, why would you have two offices in one in one city? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, conglomerate the two together. It makes financial sense. It'll run much more efficiently and so forth. The challenge with it is this. The consulate in Jerusalem had always been the de facto embassy to Palestine. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Gaza, your West Bank, etc. And had always been seen by the Palestinians as the American embassy to you know to their state. Yeah, and so you've got a bit of a bit of a progression that is taking place here. So last October, uh, the United States recognised um, Jerusalem as the capital city yeah. of uh, Israel. That created a very large target on the back of every American tourist traveling over to that region of the world, mm. um, which a lot of Americans weren't so happy about. Now you've got the uh, the consulate being closed, mm. which was the uh, I, I guess the embassy to to uh, Palestine, and all Palestinian affairs moved to the uh, to the actual embassy that's there in Israel. Um, and you know, if you go back through the history of it, you find that when the embassy was moved to Jerusalem, it caused the Palestinians to cut ties with the United yep. States. Anyway, diplomatic ties. You can sort of imagine why, which caused the United States to cut hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to the Palestinians. So this was uh, humanitarian aid, aid for hospitals, um, for United Nations initiatives that were taking place in Palestine, for peacekeeping missions, and so forth. Mm. All gone. So that's blown. A massive, massive amount of money out of a out of an economy really that does not have any significant resources or income. Yeah. Mm. So primarily, yes, you've got tourism. Tourism plays a large part uh, in the West Bank, um, not in Gaza, obviously, but in the West mm. Bank. And you know, outside of tourism, really, what industry is there there? And, of course, industry needs to be created in these areas so that people can improve their lives and live. Um, and, of course, you know, last year around about the same time, the United States shut down uh, the, the, the Palestinian diplomatic mission to the United States. Mm. And so there's been 
you know, this is this is a symbolic move, mm. as well as you know they're saying, oh yeah, this is an economic move. But really, what it is 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 a symbolic move, where they're saying very very the United States is saying very very clearly we are one hundred percent behind Israel, mm-hmm. and we are cutting off as much to do with Palestine as what we can. Now, one of the things that people would assume if they haven't been to that part of the world is that this is you know connected to somehow you know the war on terror yeah and you've got a jewish state versus a muslim state and of course you know the muslims are on the outer at the moment because they're seen as being you know the 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 terrorists yeah the the media just seems to dump them all into one big bucket together and You know, having been to that part of the world and realized that, you know, when you cross, when you when you are in Israel itself, you are treated well because you are a tourist and they like to collect your tourist dollars. Mm. When you cross over into Palestine, you're going around, your, all of your Israeli tourist guys, lovely people, and all, this, all this kind of thing, um, and they're telling you about the sites and they're happy to tell you about, you mm. know, the, uh, the sites that involve Jesus and so forth, but, you know... We, we need to remember that they see Jesus as being an imposter. Yeah. Whereas when you cross the border into Palestine and suddenly your tour guides are Christian people who believe in mm. Jesus Christ, who believe in salvation by grace. Um, and, you know, the sites that they're taking, to, taking you to have so much more meaning to them mm. Than what it has to the Jewish people, mm. who really, in many ways, look at Jesus as being the person who came along and wrecked their religion, yeah, um, and and spoiled everything for them. And obviously, you know, Christianity rose up and and became a great persecuting power against Judaism for you know a couple of thousand years. And so there's yeah. a, there's a couple of thousand years of bad blood there, and it's like, well, we have to deal with this because it's what brings money into our economy. And, uh, and 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 so you know you've got this big contrast, and people don't don't realise that you know the Palestinians are you know primarily Christians, at least yeah. half of them are Christians. And the question that that goes through my mind is this: you know, it seems that we support Israel for religious reasons, but the Palestinians are closer to us religiously <laughs> yeah, wow. than what the Israelis are. Mm. Yeah, you know, it sort of it raises a bunch of questions in my mind. I don't have the solution to, you know, the whole Palestinian Israel situation, not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't know that anybody does have a solution to that. But you know, even when you look at the way that the state of Israel was formed, and it it, it sort mm. of you know here in Australia we think, oh, what would happen if you know all of the uh, the, the we had so much Asian immigration, for instance, that um, eventually you know the entire government was taken over by Asians and we became an Asian country, become a part of Asia, and we lose mm. our Australian culture. Nobody likes to lose their culture. Can it take place through immigration? Well, Israel is a prime example that it can, mm. because the state of Israel was created uh, by immigration after the Second World. War with lots of Jews going to Israel until they reached about 33% of the population yeah. and were able to take over. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's something that, um, yeah, it sort of goes around in my head. But anyway, on to other news. Um, oh, just quick fun fact. Yeah, yeah quick fun fact. Oh, I just, you're talking about industry in, mm-hmm. in the Middle East and, and it's actually in a really tragic state at the moment because all the countries over there are just so... Oh, man, they're just all in the midst of wars and rebellions and yep. all this stuff, and it means that no one's got any money. Um, and probably the the most well-off um, country in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, so they're f- so their number one export there is oil, mm-hmm. and their number two export is flavoured water. 
I found out the other day. So, so, so there you go. They're they're booming in their industry. Well, there you go. <laughs> University of Newcastle professor of dietetics and nutrition Claire Collins has called for a national nutrition policy. Australia has not had one since 1992. Mm. Um, supported by Queensland Health Minister. Um, uh, who has stated that big corporations advertising junk food and sugary drinks, such things as flavoured water, is placing a strain on the healthcare system. Obesity is costing this country $50 billion a year. And one of the issues that is coming through is prenatal obesity, where you know women are using this excuse of like, "Oh, I'm I'm, I'm eating for two now," and the baby becomes fat, and the baby is born obese. Two wow. out of three Australians are obese. It is on an upward trajectory that is just behind the United States. It is causing heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, cancer, depression, and arthritis. Mm. And uh, all of these things are destroying, you know, the life and the and the health of Australians. The food industry um, is at fault largely because they have promoted food as being entertainment rather than mm. nutrition. You just walk down any aisle and you're going to be bamboozled, any supermarket aisle, you're going to be bamboozled with, you know, all the bright plastic yeah. um, advertising and all it is selling is disease. Mm. You know, we get we get uh, we get upset in this country when we can't you know access affordable drugs um, that we need, but we're doing nothing about the food that is causing the the problem that we need those affordable drugs for. Yeah. We need to be cutting this off at the other end. Mm. You know, and so we've got laws in Australia, like for instance, seatbelts, and they save a minuscule amount of lives compared to those that are being lost through what is being fed to us, and we need to be regulated regulating junk food yeah. we need to be regulating junk food advertising we need to have uh, this kind of food now placed in the same category as smoking advertising and brought to an end let's get some action happening and make it take place right now we're going to listen to Anna Beaton <laughs> from 
You're listening to Anna Beaton with A Beating Heart here on Faith FM. And before we come to our interview of the day, we have uh, Lawson who is going to give us another clue for the quiz. Lawson, what have you got for us yes, right there? Yes, another clue for the quiz. Okay. The king granted me everything I asked because of the hand of the Lord was on me. Mm-hmm. If you want to answer that question, then give us a call. 1-800-324-843 is the number, or text us on 0491-064-669. Bam, there you go. We have an interview right now. And we only have one prize. Yeah, because yeah, love got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one prize available if you call us right now. Um, joining us on the phone this morning is Baron de Neustraten, who is an expert on uh, all things in re- relationship to creation and uh, Hebrew and the Old Testament and so forth. Baron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lyle. Pleasure to be here. Now, Baron, last time you were on, we talked about, uh, what was it, day four of creation? Day I four. Day I four. That's yeah. right. We talked about day four of creation. We talked about the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so that leads us on to day five. What can you tell us about day five of creation? Day five of creation is the introduction of animated organic life. So we have on day five the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and then, of course, uh, followed by day six, when we have uh, all uh, animated life, that uh, lives uh, on the on the land, and uh, and then of course ultimately it culminates in the seventh day, which explains the purpose for the whole of creation. Now, Baron, just a question that I have often wondered: Why the fish and the birds before the animals? Is there a reason for that, or was this just something that God was like, "Yeah, I'm just going to do it this way"? It's interesting. Uh, I don't think there's really an answer to that because there was an order of six days and uh, each day was filled with an introduction of either the conditions to support organic life or organic life itself. Uh, It'd be hard to speculate, but not that God couldn't have done it all, say, on day six, and I'm referring to all the land animals and man himself, but that's not what he chose to do. Sure. Yeah, why not? And uh, do we have any idea where the insects might have been created? Are they cons- are they classed amongst winged creatures or creeping creatures? Yeah, that's a very good question once again. The Bible is actually quite silent on that, although it refers, of course, to the, uh, uh, to the birds and the category of the uh, insects could not be classified as birds. So you'd have to say... That, that would have been the day after. Sure. And uh, and when the Bible talks about creeping things, well, the Old English talks about creeping things. It uh, yeah. certainly brings insects to my mind. Okay, yeah. so um, on day six, something very special happens. Take us through that. Yeah, on day six. So we have really, other than the animals that, um, that are classified and referred to there in the Bible, we have man, uh, mankind itself and... Uh, that was really the the crowning act on the creation as far as this planet was concerned. Now, just on that question, Baron, we find that uh, we do have you know, those in our world today, particularly amongst, say, for instance, the um, the extreme green movement, who would say that there is no difference in, or there's no there's no there's no levels between, say, you know, an animal and a human, and and both have the same rights. They both have the same equality. Um, do we get that picture from the creation week? 
No, we don't actually. There's an interesting statement uh, besides the observable facts that obviously we, we can consider moral issues. Man was created in the image of God. Animals were not. Uh, we both endowed with the capacity for procreation, but man is a moral being because God is a moral being and we live in a moral universe. The interesting thing is that when there is the summary there in Genesis 2, when God refers to the uh, to man and he notes, of course, that man is on his own, whereas all the other animals, uh, we talk about uh, day five and uh, day six, uh, there are multiple species uh, and multiple uh, sorts. So man is on his own, and uh, he says there in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's not good for that man should be alone. And there would have been a purpose that man realized he was on his own, and then God said, I'll make him a helper. And the Hebrew word is there, it's not that she's subordinate to him, but uh, she was a helper, companion. And then it says uh, the other qualification uh, is that the woman came from the man, and that is rather interesting. If you look at the chromosomes, the X and Y chromosomes, that man has the X and the Y, and the woman only, of course, has the Xs. So it's interesting that the order from a biological point of view is correct. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. And, um, of, of course, the other thing that I find interesting is when you mentioned that human beings are moral cre- creatures created in the image yeah. of God. God is moral. Humans are moral. Outside Correct. of creation, you know, if we, if we were to do away with creation and to just, um, you know, take it from a purely evolutionary perspective – is there a reason for morality to exist? Can we explain the, 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 the you know an origin for morality? Yeah, yeah. The, the capacity for for morality would have to be brought back to the ability to reason and consider uh, the effect it might have. Uh, any action that we perform, the action would be having an impact on others. And so uh, it'd be very hard. You wouldn't find morality uh, other than instinct. You find no morality amongst the animal kingdom. Uh, just another little quick note to your previous question, which I think is important in verse 20 of chapter 2. Uh, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So that eliminates any process of an evolution because there was nothing there that would have evolved into something that might have been adequate for Adam. It had to be an equal. Uh, I'll just note that one. It's important yeah, that's that a, we realize yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never actually thought of that before. But, you know, even if uh, if Adam had, had been, you know, the kind of human that we are and, and you know, evolutionists like to, to, to say that, you know, there were Neanderthals that came before us and that you know, we could interbreed yeah. with Neanderthals and so forth, yeah, uh, yeah. which creates very, very murky water as to, you know, how do you actually define what's a human and what's a Neanderthal? And uh, yeah. and, and where do you find the, the, the sharp line between the two species? species um, that yeah. they, they so confidently put forward, but if that yeah. had been in, in existence, then there would have been something that was at least comparable. Yeah, so so the Bible is very clear on the issue, uh, supporting the six-day creation, that in fact there is no intermediate stages available in any way 
shape or form. Mm. It simply just said he was on his own and uh, nothing was comparable to him. So it's quite definitive, isn't it, that God did not use a process of evolution. Now, Byron, you've been mentioning some passages there about creation from Genesis chapter 2. So really what you've got is two creation accounts, isn't it, between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Why do we have those two accounts? Yeah, that's very common in the Hebrew narrative that you have a an account that covers a particular issue or time period particularly uh, from a certain perspective and then you come back and you cover the same ground again, whether it is a prophetic era, whether it is, uh, which is very common, particularly in Daniel and Revelation, or whether you talk about an act of God. And it's just from a somewhat of a different perspective where God adds further detail and includes it in the in the other details that he gives that were not there in chapter one. Sure. So in chapter two, we've got um, we've got detail about, you know, because chapter one just says he created human beings, whereas chapter two, it talks about how he created man and um, and, 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 and then created woman, um, talks about the Garden of Eden and so forth. It, it, yeah. it also talks very specifically about how how God created man, which was different from the way uh, that he that he created um, yeah the the other animals. It is, yeah, and it is very fascinating when you look at the account. Uh, so it, it it basically it says uh, that God created uh, every beast, every bird, uh, sorry, every beast of the field, every bird of the air. And that they were all formed, as was man, as we know, from the earth, which is quite fascinating. And, uh, you know, we've known this for hundreds of years, that the elements uh, that makes up our, our, our biochemical makeup, in a sense, all come down to some of the elements that you find, uh, obviously, in, in the soil. Uh, but this was written three and a half thousand years ago. Mm. So uh, soil is composed of mineral organic matter, air and water. And the nutrient elements, of course, from the atmosphere through photosynthesis, hydrogen and carbon. But when you look at the soil itself, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, potassium and sulfur, magnesium and all the trace elements, we find in our body, but we find it also in the soil. Yeah, and the Bible says that that's where we came from. God formed man out of Correct. out of the soil, out of the dust of the ground, and uh, exactly, like, and return to that, of course, at the point of death. Yeah. So does does that mean that we're all just dirt bags then? I'm sorry. Does that mean that we're all just dirt bags then? <laughs> Adam in the Hebrew means also soil. It's dirt. Oh, really? Uh, so that's our name. <laughs> that's, <laughs> there you go. That's name. That's our name. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Okay, so now something humbling. else. We, we, yeah, that is a humbling thought. We're just dirt. We are <laughs> nothing more than dirt. From dirt we came into dirt we go. Correct. Um, great thing that God has promised us the gift of immortality through the resurrection. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. Now, in between these two creation accounts, there is a part of creation that is often skipped over in the early part of chapter 2 right there. Um, what's that all about, the seventh day of creation? Yeah, the seventh day obviously indicates the purpose. God created uh, to, for his glory. He created uh, because he's God and the love for God is love. It's an act of love. Creation is an act of love. And uh, and clearly, uh, he wants the company of the human beings. And uh, 
yeah, sometimes it's uh, hard to believe, uh, but he loves us beyond any understanding on our part. Uh, and the love is so incredible and partly explained because he made us, he created us. And uh, it, it is a wonderful thing that uh, we are the objects of his love and so well expressed as we know and believe in Calvary. Uh, but it is a wonderful thing that God seeks communion for the first full day. Man has a capacity for reason, capacity for uh, interaction, uh, social interaction, of course, uh, and appreciation thereof. Uh, then spend the first full day with God. They both do, and it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I mean, you think, think about the size of the universe and how many, you know, the, the potential for, you know, life that there is in the universe and so forth, that God would take an entire day out of, you know, what we would assume to be a very busy schedule. You know, certainly he's taken six days aside to create everything here on this earth, and then you might think, well, you know, they've got more important things I need to get back to, but no, he doesn't. He just spends an entire day yeah. ruler and creator of the universe with yeah. one newlywed couple yeah it, it actually is, is, is an incredible it's an incredible privilege and uh, your mind turns to that and you think you know I wish I would have been there myself because I have a lot of questions <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, one, one wonders uh, what the conversations might have been but the realization that that existence was brought forth by a loving God for the purpose of communion, and I think that must have been absolutely thrilling. Does that does that time of communion with God remain? It definitely does. Uh, we 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 look at the, the, look the seventh day Sabbath was created before the fall, so it's not pointing towards a savior, a redeemer. It was just as much part of creation. It was just a creation of time set aside for a very specific purpose, and that is a a, a very uh, profound uh, communion with with uh, with their maker. Um, the the fact is that Jesus, of course, kept the seventh day Sabbath, as did uh, the, the apostles, as did the early church. Till uh, towards the early Middle Ages, uh, people were uh, forced by by a rather dominant uh, church system to change it from Sabbath, from the seventh day Sabbath to the first day of the week, and the first day of the week has its origin, of course, from paganism. Sure, and of course, at the end of on, on Friday, I'm heading off to Ethiopia, which was a country where um, you know the Sabbath was pre- preserved for many centuries. Oh, up to 16th century at least. Yeah, mm, yeah. incredible. Fantastic. Barand, thank you so much for joining us here on Faith FM this morning. We look forward to chatting again in a month's time when we will come back and talk about how it all came unstuck. But uh, yeah, thank yeah. you for joining us. A pleasure. God bless you. Have a great day, Lyle. Yes, you too, Baron. That was Baron Neustraten um, joining us on the phone this morning to talk about creation. He'll be back again to talk about the fall in about a month's time. We always enjoy it when Baron uh, joins us right now. This is Melissa Otto.
part of camping caravanning scene. Join Australia's largest annual national gathering of travellers and caravanners at the Stewart's Point Convention Centre this year, Stewart's Point, New South Wales. It's an amazing campground among the trees. Inspirational Christian speakers. With incredible music. And beautiful beaches. And a relaxing environment. Be part of the community and make friends for life. May 10 through 18. Stewart's Point Caravan and Convention Centre. Contact Debbie on 024994-3220 or simply email raynomads at adventist.org.au. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio.